Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. The Raiders sending Amari Cooper to the Dallas Cowboys for a first-round pick. Let me repeat that for you. The Raiders traded Amari Cooper to the Dallas Cowboys for a first-round pick. And I repeat that for a number of different reasons. First off, according to reports, John Gruden did not tell his players about that deal. So if any of them are listening and they are planning on seeing Coop around the facility or somewhere in town today, that's not happening. My man's already gone. Sorry about that, fellas. Gruden was not going to tell his team until tomorrow. Secondly, if trading Cleo Mack was a whack move, I have to say this one from a Raiders standpoint was actually pretty genius. Oakland has been jonesing to move Cooper for quite some time, and now they finally get somebody to give them a first-round pick for it, and of course that somebody is the Dallas Cowboys. So from the Raiders' perspective, that trade is the official announcement that they're packing C4 next to the foundation of this Oakland team, and they're going to blow it the hell up. This is a full-on rebuild, and nobody in silver and black is safe at this point. Mack is gone. Cooper is gone. How long before they break off Derek Carr? To me, the question then becomes, was this the plan all along? Did John Gruden look at that roster before he took that job and tell Mark Davis, your 53 are garbage. You pay me what I want, and then I'm going to come in, and I'm going to drop a bomb on the whole thing. Was that the plan all along? If so, I find that pretty curious, because wasn't it Mark Davis who was going on about winning a world championship before bouncing from the Bay Area? It was. He said that. And while that's pretty laughable right now, considering they might be the worst team in the NFL, not named the Giants, or maybe they are the worst team in the NFL. Either way, it didn't seem like that big of a joke when the guy said it. After all, they did win 12 games and make the playoffs only two years earlier. And he was bringing in the alleged smartest guy who ever lived and paying him 100 mil. So either Davis knew this is how this was going to go and lied out his ass or he had no idea what the hell he was doing or what he was saying. You go ahead and make the choice yourself. And even if Gruden didn't know, and then he just showed up, and he realized that almost none of his guys could play at all, fine. Admit it. Own it. Shoot everybody straight. And that's the only way to go at this point. Fact is, the Raiders are not better than they were at the start of the season. In fact, they've gotten worse. This trade is easily their biggest win of the entire season. So now we're to assume that John Gruden's got a plan. Great. He's got a plan. However, do you trust this guy to execute that plan? Yes, I know he's stockpiling draft picks. But what good is that if you're not known for drafting and developing young talent and Gruden's not? Draft picks aren't worth a damn if you don't know how to use them, if you don't know what to do with them. And identifying talent and developing talent has never been Chunk's bag. But it better be right now. It better be right now because he's got draft picks. That's his plan. And then from the Dallas perspective, the secret great trade is to find somebody more desperate than you. In other words, go find a bigger sucker than you. And right now, there is no bigger bunch of suckers than the Dallas Cowboys. This is shades of that great Roy Williams trade back in the day. You know, the one that Jerry Jones reportedly regretted. The one that he's practically done all over again. 
What is it with Jerry and wide receivers? This is not the first time he's done this. He did it with Williams. He did it with Joey Galloway. And now with Cooper. I mean, the Raiders would have taken pennies on the dollar for Cooper. And instead, the Cowboys give them dollars on the penny. Hell, gave them Franklin's on the penny. And right, I know there are other teams that were allegedly offering a second-round pick. But just to go all the way to a first-rounder, to go all-in with a first-rounder, and yes, I'm well aware that next year's draft is not shaping up to be some kind of wide-receiver bonanza. But given the way that teams normally treat their first-round picks, like gold, if you're going to give up one of those, you better be getting Khalil Mack in return. Instead, they get a receiver who might be good, might be good, but hasn't been in nearly two seasons. And a guy whose commitment to the game has been questioned. A first-round pick for a guy who has not been the same guy since 2016. A guy who had two games north of 115 yards, but four games below 20 yards this season. Oh, and if that doesn't make you want to send a first-rounder for him, get this. He also suffered a concussion in Week 6. And he's got a bad case of the drops. And he's going to be due a large contract extension. And it's pretty hard to justify trading a first-round pick for a guy and then not giving him that fat extension. In other words, you better hope he does produce if you're Dallas. You better hope that he and Dak Prescott become the next Aikman and Irvin. As if either of those things are going to happen. And that's before we get to the fact that Cooper does most of his best work in the slot and Dallas already has Cole Beasley in the slot. And Cole Beasley was their best receiver. What's going to happen if you move him out of the slot? And despite all of that, the Cowboys still wanted that deal. The Raiders had to be freaking out. I mean, the, Raiders, the Raiders had to be, are you serious? Jerry, do you really want to make that deal? I mean, I'm not here for prank calls. If you're yanking my chain, Jarrah, hang up the phone right now. It's like the Raiders were giving Dallas the Carfax report on Cooper. Four games, under 20 yards, commitment questioned. Nobody really knows what the hell happened to this guy the last two years. He's got a concussion, and the Cowboys kept nodding and saying, yep, yep, that's our guy, that's our guy. Take this first-round pick right now, or we'll throw in another one. Yeah, I know the argument that the Cowboys' offense is better today than it was at this time yesterday. It better be. They just gave up a first-round pick. One that could be in the top 15 for a receiver. It damn well better be better today than it was yesterday. It better be much better today than it was yesterday. And yes, I also know the argument that this gives them a shot to win the NFC East, which is wide ass open. Again, it better, it better, if you're giving up a first-round pick, it better give you a shot to win that division. You make a move like that, you better take a big step because that's a big swing. And some little baby step wouldn't match that big swing. However, the deal is a completed mission that Dallas has totally and utterly mismanaged their wide receiver situation. Yeah, I guess that whole wide out by committee strategy isn't working out so well. Hey, Jarrah, who could have seen that coming? I'm not sure if this is about saving Dak or if it's about saving Jason Garrett, because Jarrah made all these decisions, and Jarrah doesn't want to look bad, and Jarrah loves those two, doesn't he? But if I'm the Cowboys, I'm hoping this better be about both, saving Dak and Jason Garrett, or else the deal is even worse than expected. If the Raiders are getting over on you, you know it's not good.
Coach him up, Jason. Coach him the hell up. How about them Jeff Brom. Jeff, it is so good to have you on the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you. Jeff, I know you've shifted already to Michigan State, but if you can for just a moment, can you go back to Saturday night? That was a primetime game at home against the number two team in the country. I'm curious, what was the mood like in the locker room and on the sideline before the game? Well, quite honestly, uh, we were relaxed. Uh, you know, I told our team, uh, you know, we've already been through some struggles this year. We lost our first three games. I think we learned a lot along the way. We found a way to improve on uh, everything that we were doing, uh, coaching, uh, playing, uh, silly mistakes, uh, everything that we could correct, we did our best to do that. And I think we found a way to improve. And I told our guys before the game, you know, I've been here a year and a half. Uh, I didn't think we were ready for this game last year. I didn't think we were ready for this game really up until – uh, the night before, and I, I thought we had a chance. If we uh, played hard for 60 minutes, if we didn't make silly mistakes, if we were aggressive in our attack, I thought we had a chance. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the chances aren't as high uh, probably going against a team like that, but I wanted our guys to believe. you got to take the field that you can believe that you're going to win. And I think we uh, came into the game, we were loose. We understood the pressure was going to be on them. they got to perform. they got to live up to their expectations for us. Let's just cut it loose. Let it hang out, and after 60 minutes, let's look and see what the score is, and our guys did a great job. Jeff Rahm joining us. That's exactly what you did. You get up on them early, and then you never let up. I want to be very clear about this, too. This was not a fluke win. You beat up and dominated the number two team in the country, and you had huge performances from guys like DJ Knox, Rondale Moore, a few more. How important a night then was it for the program, and what's it say about Purdue football? Well, it was huge, and I'm not going to lie. We we enjoyed it. Uh, we're probably still smiling uh, uh, as we speak right now, even though we've got to move on today to Michigan State and get going and, and make sure that uh, we're ready for them. But uh, it was a great moment. Our players uh, have suffered a lot of losses the last uh, so many years, and uh, for them to come through and find a way to improve and be the team this talented and uh, this highly ranked was great. Our fans were into it. There were a lot of other inspirational things going on that kind of played into it. So it was a great night for all uh, to have it on prime time and for our guys to, like you said, not only win the game, but I, I really felt good because we were aggressive the entire time. We knew at any point in given time, these guys would come back and beat us. Uh, so we tried to stay on the attack, and our guys did play hard for 60 minutes, and the score uh, resulted in what it was because of that. Are you looking for seats to the Fall Classic? You can get them at Vivid Seats. With Vivid Seats, a brand new sponsor here, you can attend the concert, the show, or sporting event of your choice and do so at a great price. Here's what I like about Vivid Seats. It is the top source for tickets for all the live events that you want to go to, and you can sort by price or look for the seats in the section and the row of your choice. And to make it even better, Vivid Seats is reaching out to you new customers and will give you a promo code, which will give you 10% off your first ticket order so you can save even more money. So what you want to do is go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. First-time customers can enter the promo code RPO and receive 10% off your order. Once again, enter the promo code RPO and get 10% off your order. Every single purchase is backed by a 100% buyer guarantee. From the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater and more, Vivid Seats has it all. Make sure you download that app and enter the promo code RPO. Get 10% off your first order on Vivid Seats. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime. Let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite live event. Vivid Seats. This is a great company with an awesome proposition. Check it out yourself. Vivid Seats.
Purdue head football coach Jeff Brom joining us. Jeff, you mentioned there was other inspiration as well. Another huge part of that experience Saturday is Purdue student Tyler Trent, who's battling cancer. Some people had the chance to see his story as part of that coverage. But for those who do not know Tyler, who is he and what does he mean to you and your program? Well, Tyler Trent is a special young man. Really, uh, it started about a year ago uh, before the Michigan game. He was camped out uh, trying to be the first one in. I ran into him on my way down uh, to, to eat a meal and talk to him uh, outside the stadium. And he never really explained the situation at the time. But as we got going through the season, I got to know him a little bit. I understood he was going through some cancer treatments and uh, things weren't great, but he was doing a pretty good job with it. He was in school here. And then you just saw him at our bowl game. And then he was at numerous basketball games and made the uh, trip to, to New York with the basketball team and just showed up. He was a sports fan, an avid Purdue guy. Uh, and we kind of you know, talked occasionally, but not a whole lot. And really it wasn't until uh, the Nebraska game a few weeks ago, uh, we found a way to go down there and win uh, after the game. And before the game, I had heard that things had taken a turn for the worse. Um, after the game was over on the plane ride home, I saw some pictures and it wasn't what you wanted to see. So we kind of decided, uh, you know, that our team captains would take the game ball to him the next day and just say, Hey, you're our team captain. We appreciate everything you do and you're going through. And really it was a, great experience for Tyler. It was a very moving experience for our players when they came back and they were touched by it and really just kind of took off from there. And uh, I think he kind of wanted, uh, went out on a limb and predicted we beat Ohio State, which put a lot of pressure on us. Uh, but he predicted that. He predicted he would be able to go to the game uh, and make that, even though he was really going through some hard times. And, uh, you know, I don't know much how, how much longer he has with us. But uh, you know what? I went and saw him a few days uh, after our players did. Uh, he came to the game both times I've seen him for his condition. He looks tremendous. He has a great smile, a great personality. He says all the right things. He's got a great spirit. Uh, and now he's kind of become, uh, he was our team captain. Now he turned into Purdue's, uh, campus and school captain. Now the kind of nation has taken over and read his story. And to be quite honest with you, I think, uh, you know, while football is a great sport, it is a game and there are a lot of other important things in life. And for us to, get as much out of him as we did but really he's got a lot out of not only us but the entire nation touching him and I think it's made him stronger I think it's made him uh, survive longer and hopefully it continues to do that Jeff Brom joining us I so appreciate your thoughts on that and he really is something else you know you had a lot of success at Western Kentucky and the opportunity came up at Purdue and the thinking had been that coaches might have some success at Purdue but it's not necessarily a place where you can go compete with the best of the Big Ten so what was your thinking when you looked at that opportunity well, I like to be a little different. Uh, I know when I was at Western Kentucky, things were going pretty good, and I felt good about uh, the future. And, you know, when this job came open and they kind of approached me, uh, probably 90% of the people I asked said, no, you don't want to take that. No way. Uh, wait on a better one. And I kind of understood that to a certain degree. But the more I heard it, the more I said, you know what? Uh, I don't like when people tell me what to do. And I, I kind of looked at it and I said, you know what? This is an intriguing uh, spot. I think this is a spot that actually uh, – need somebody to come in uh, and be a difference maker and do their part, uh, need somebody to come in and, and take on this challenge and see really if you can coach. I think uh, sometimes it's a little bit easier when you go to the Ohio States and the Floridas and the USC's. It's, it's just slightly easier. And I said, you know what, this is the challenge I want. Let's, let's see if we can go there, be a difference maker. I know as a head coach, you always ask for these players and recruits to come to your school uh, and say, hey, don't go to, to Ohio State. Come here. You can be a difference maker. You can play. You can uh, we can get you in the game. So I said, you know what, let, let's take this on. 
And uh, you know what? It's it's had plenty of challenges, but uh, the administration, the people here have treated me great. We built a brand-new facility last year. Our fan support has been great. Um, we made some strides last year. We won our bowl game. We've got a lot of hungry players. We've got a lot of hungry people on this campus that want this program to get better. So for us to finally take make some strides, it does mean a lot. And it's much more rewarding when you win here, in my opinion, compared to somewhere else because you are making a difference. And I enjoy where I'm at, and, and I think we're making progress. Still a lot of a long ways to go, but I enjoy uh, fighting that battle every week. Purdue head football coach Jeff Brom joining us. Now listen, you and I could spend the entire interview talking about your journey to get to this point. It's a journey which includes playing minor league baseball with Jim Tomey and Manny Ramirez, playing college football for Howard Schnellenberger, being an XFL legend, being a backup to Steve Young. We don't have time for all of this, and I wish we did. I just want you to know this will not be our last conversation as far as I'm concerned. But as you look back on all of that, your journey and where you are right now, what kind of thoughts do you have? Well, luckily, it kind of made me into what I am today. I've been able to experience a lot. And to be quite honest with you, experience a lot of failure along the way, even though I've been able to accomplish a few things. But, you know, playing baseball, you're going to fail a lot. Uh, bounced around the NFL, got cut by a lot of teams, but found a way to maybe get back on another, uh, had some failures in, in coaching. All those things, I think, have, have helped make you stronger. Uh, you learn from your mistakes. Uh, you try to surround yourself with good people. You try to treat people the right way while you continue to work and get better. But, it's been a lot of fun, and I've had a chance to, to coach with a lot of great coaches, play with a lot of great players, and when you're just trying to make a team like I was in the NFL every year, you kind of go above and beyond to learn the game and uh, try to gain an edge. And, uh, you know, I've just tried to give back to the players I have here the best I can, surround them with good, uh, good coaches, try to do things the right way, have fun playing the game. We do like, you know, in my opinion, it is a game. We want to make it exciting. We try to be entertaining and run trick plays and throw it around and have some fun and make it a style that people want to watch and play in. All right, so you had one of the all-time great moments in XFL history, too. You took that enormous hit in the game, the kind of hit that made your teammates really worried for you, but you came right back out to play again six days later, and you dropped this sideline interview, which was one for the ages. Jeff, let me play this very quickly. Jeff, Brown, how in the world are you starting this game tonight after taking that hit just six days ago? Well, let me, answer, let me answer that question by asking you two questions. One, is this or is this not the XFL? Yes, it is. Two, do I or do I not currently have a pulse? Yes, I do. Let's play football. Let's play football. What do you remember, Jeff, about that hit and then coming back to play as quickly as you did? Oh, well, shoot. That's when life was fun back then. Uh, you know what? I, I could give you the long version, but we don't have much time. But I'll give you the short version. Sure. Uh, you know what? Uh, I actually kind of had a concussion. Uh, I went to the doctor uh, during the week, and he kind of said, hey, you know, you kind of probably need to sit out a few games. You got a concussion. This was back when you didn't know as much about it. And uh, I kind of had about 20 of my buddies coming in for that next game. We were playing a good opponent, and I just kind of remembered, hey, this is the, ex you know, in my head, I'm like, this is the XFL. There's no rules in this. So I kind of told the doctor, I said, hey, you know what, I, I don't, I have never seen any rules on having to sit out. Just so you know, I'm going to play in this game. And he kind of said, well, play at your own risk. And I said, well, that's fine. So anyway, I, I went uh, and uh, did the interview, and uh, you know, you try to have a little fun with it. I didn't want to disrespect anybody or the other team, but uh, uh, the ratings were going down. They uh, wanted a little bit of spice, a little bit of fun to us. So I tried to just add a little personality, uh, and uh, you know, back when you said it, you just thought, okay, it's going to happen, and people forget about it. But uh, the way it works today, it, it goes on YouTube or online, and you can't get rid of it. So everywhere I go, that kind of 
I can't live it down, so I just got to own up to it. But it was just me trying to have a little fun. Of course. My man, the internet is in ink. We all know that now. Every <laughs> one of us, myself included. Jeff, last thing. You're killing it at Purdue. I have to ask you. I mean, you, you get to a ball game. You win a ball game. You beat Ohio State. You're living large. You must be rolling in a pretty fancy car right about now. What kind of a rig are you driving these days? <laughs> well, uh, I tell you what. I, I don't... Uh, I don't need much. Uh, you know, right now I've got a nice, beautiful 2004 Honda Accord. Um, it, uh, smooth ride, has great gas mileage. It gets me from point A to point B. Uh, and in my opinion, uh, that's kind of uh, my personality, who I am. Uh, now my wife, she's got a nicer car, so, you know, it's not like we don't have one, but I, I like to drive my Honda Accord and, uh, I just feel like it's a good fit. Hey, Jeff, how many miles does that bad boy have on it? Well, believe it or not, that's probably one of the reasons I can still ride it. It only has 100,000 miles because I haven't used it a whole lot until I got here to Purdue. And it's just kind of now it kind of is part of me. And I don't feel like I should give that thing up for a while. Still got a lot of use in it. You know, those Honda Accords can last a long time. Forever. So last thought really quickly. Is it true that the campus police showed up at the football (laughs) office one day and towed the car saying somebody parked in your space? Well, they, they actually did not tow it, but they were getting ready to. And uh, luckily, my older brother's our director of football operations, and they came to him and said, hey, you know, somebody's parked in, in the spot. And he said, well, hold on a second. Let me, you know, what car is it? And they told him. He said, no, 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 that, that's his car. So it did not get towed, but they were ready to. Uh, but now they know it's mine, and, and, and I feel safe that it won't happen. Purdue is such a great story. They beat number two Ohio State and beat them down 49-20. to 20. Big game coming up Saturday against Michigan State. Their head coach, Jeff Brom, my guest. Jeff, that was awesome. So good to have you on the show. Really appreciate you, and I hope we can do it again soon. That was a lot of fun. Okay, well, thank you very much, and I appreciate you having me. Tuesday's Daily Jungle is brought to you by my pals at Ferguson. No matter how big or small your team is, Ferguson has a winning game plan for pro contractors with thousands of plumbing repair parts, knowledgeable associates, and the largest national footprint in the game. When the pressure is on, count on Ferguson. I got to get to my take on the Lakers, or we just won't. They got their day off to a pretty good start yesterday when they found out that Brandon Ingram was only going to get suspended for four games and Rajon Rondo was only going to get three. Now, I'm going to argue that those punishments really do not fit those crimes. Not when the crimes were starting a brawl and spitting in a dude's face, allegedly, respectively. They got off pretty easy, right? The fact that Ingram admitted to being pleasantly surprised by that suspension tells you that he knows he got over. I mean, Rondo got only three games for spitting in somebody's face. Allegedly, he denied it. The Lakers denied it, and the Rockets said, Roy, look at this tape. Look at this super slow-mo, high-res video, and then tell us that he didn't spit in his face. What that also meant, though, was the Lakers had to go with Lonzo Ball and Kyle Kuzma to start that game. Not exactly ideal when you're 0-2 and you've got the Spurs coming into your house. And last night's 143-142, come from behind, come from ahead, overtime loss to San Antonio was definitely not ideal. But it doesn't mean that there weren't moments. doesn't mean there weren't highlights. You had Kuzma going 37-8. and You had rookie big Jonathan Williams coming up big on the defensive end. And you had the comeback from down eight with just over a minute left in regulation. And then you had the moment. You know the one I'm talking about. 
L.A. down three with less than 10 seconds to go. The ball in LeBron's hands. Go ahead and roll this. Rebound Hart. Hart ahead to LeBron. Lakers need a three. The Lakers are not calling timeout. Five seconds remaining. LeBron for three in the tie. Good! LeBron James from 25 feet away ties the game at 128. 2.4 to go. Timeout San Antonio. How do you like them apples? Of course, it was not going to be any other way. There was no way that was not going to go down. No way Staples wasn't going to lose their collective bleep after that. Send that game into overtime, then win the game in overtime. It would have been a truly amazing way to get your first win as a Laker. Except that's not what happened. The Lakers had a lead late in overtime. Everything looked perfect, and then it all fell apart. LeBron missed a couple of free throws. With 11 seconds left and then a long jumper at the buzzer, there would have been the game winner. So he had his chance. This time he did not finish. This time it did not work out. L.A. is now 0-3. And I'm guessing you're expecting me to clown Laker fan and car flag nation for getting their hopes up and getting all crazy. Hell no. That's not what this is about. Yes, there are going to be some fools running around claiming that L.A. season is already over. That the playoffs are already out of reach. That it's time to start thinking about next year already. I mean, there are fools running around this town and other towns saying that. It's one of the worst takes ever. Yes, they're 0-3. Last year's team started 2-2. You tell me which team you'd rather have. The year before, they were 6-4. So I can only assume that these same dopes that are panicking right now were planning a parade that year when they started 6-4. Too bad they went from starting 6-4 to finishing 26-56. What I'm saying is, they've got a totally new roster. They played three games all against playoff teams. They've lost every game. That's fine. It's not a reason to panic. It's not like they've been hammered, steamrolled. As LeBron himself said, this is not instant oatmeal. Instant oatmeal. By the way, have you checked out some of the other teams? OKC, 0-3. Utah, 1-2. Houston, 1-2. Boston, 2-2. You think anybody is panicking in any of those cities? Again, the season is a week old. No time to panic. Not for anybody. L.A. fought back last night. Remember, they fought back last night, and they did it without two of their starters. They sent that game to overtime when it was pretty much dead. And then in overtime, they got up, and they choked it away. That'll happen. When you're overhauling on the fly like the Lakers are. They've got a totally new roster that's going to need some time. And on top of that, they were missing two starting players last night. Totally new roster that got shaken up again. That instant oatmeal just got hit with some cold water. It's not going to taste very good. Instant oatmeal. The issue with the Lakers so far are exactly what everybody thought they'd be. Defense, perimeter shooting. Nothing new here. LeBron didn't have his best game last night and they still nearly won. Honestly, not only am I not panicking at 0-3, they're further along than I expected at 0-3. Minus two starters against the Spurs. That looked like that had disaster written all over it, but it didn't. Kuzma and Ball battled their asses off. They combined for 51. LeBron had a quiet first half, took them into overtime still yet. In other words, this team will battle. They fight. They're figuring out their chemistry. And while the defensive end is pretty hideous, 
There is a lot to like about this team. And I'm talking about more than just the fact that they're entertaining. More than just the fact that they're a real reality show. I mean, yes, 0-3 is not what anybody was hoping for. But when you saw that opening schedule of Portland, home versus Houston, home versus San Antonio, what did you really expect? 1-2, 2-1, 3-0? Course not. But if you want to lose your bleep and you want to panic and you want to run with that lame junk, you go right ahead and do that. Me, I'm going to hang out here. If they're still winless in December, then we can have that conversation. If Phoenix does them tomorrow night, I'm going to have the same take. If they battle, if they compete, if I can pull some positives from it. It's early. They've got new faces, a new chemistry. They're actually better than I thought they'd be at this point. Instant oatmeal. I'm not panicking. Alex Honnold is my guest. Alex, really nice to have you on the show. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, good, Alex. You know, there's so many things I would love to discuss with you about the documentary because it's so tense and it's so powerful. But if we could go back a little bit, you're from Sacramento. You went to Mira Loma High School. When did you first get into climbing and when did you start to think that this might be more of a hobby or more than a hobby, but more of a way of life? Well, so I started climbing uh, in grade school, I guess, maybe as a 10-year-old, and I started climbing in the climbing gym. And, uh, well, I mean, really, I guess I'd started climbing before that, just climbing on, on trees and buildings and things. But so basically, I always loved climbing. And, and honestly, um, it never really occurred to me that it would be more than, more than a hobby. I mean, it was mostly just something that I loved to do, and so I just did it all the time, and then eventually people started paying me for it. But it wasn't really, you know, it was never really an intentional decision to become a professional rock climber. Right, so the documentary is Free Solo. It's in theaters right now. I mean, Alex, there's climbing, and then there's free solo climbing. For those who do not know, what is free solo? So free solo climbing is just climbing without a rope. Uh, I guess, yeah, climbing by yourself without protection. Um, and it's kind of just one style of rock climbing. Just, um, you know, it's slightly more adventurous to go, go out by yourself. But, but just to be clear, I mean, free soloing is something I do on occasion, you know, for sort of special events, you know, something like El Capitan and Yosemite is, is worth free soloing to me. But, um, but typically, you know, I climb with ropes and partners and things. But free soloing is just sort of like the, the, the main event of climbing for me. Okay, so you thought about free soloing El Capitan going all the way back to 2009. And I know it's not the thing you do full time, but what was it about free soloing El Cap that resonated with you? Uh, have, have you been to Yosemite and seen the wall? I mean, it's uh, it's one of the most striking, iconic walls in the world. It had always represented the next step in, in, in similar, but not nearly as, as big or as hard. And so it just represented, you know, the next step for me. You know, when you look at that next step, Tommy Caldwell, for instance, is your climbing role model. He makes the point in the dock that El Cap is 3,200 feet of sheer granite, that it's unfathomably huge. And as he says, looking at it, it just doesn't seem right. I heard what you just said. Caldwell, though, also described freestalling El Cap is like competing in an Olympic gold medal event, but if you don't get the gold, you die. Does that sound about right to you? And how much well, of that is on your mind when you do it? I mean, it might, it might be slightly hyperbolic, but, but, but yeah, I mean, it's you know, incredibly difficult. I mean, basically, you just have to make sure you choose the right day and that you've done all the preparation necessary. And I mean, that's kind of the, the point of the documentary is to chronicle the two years of preparation it took to feel comfortable trying something like that. You know, not to mention the 20 years of climbing ahead of time that got me into the position where I could put in the two years of preparation. So, Alex, you talk about how you want to make sure it's the right day, and you talk about the two years that went into it, the 20 years you thought about it. How do you know you're ready, or if you can never really be ready, how do you know it's time to do it? 
Well, that's that's kind of the, that's the big question, really. Um, I mean, I don't know. A lot of that's just personal feeling, a, a certain feeling of confidence. I mean, when you look up at the wall and it doesn't seem scary anymore, when you look up at it and, and it seems like it, that's going to be something fun as opposed to that seems terrifying. Because for many years, I'd look up at El Cap and think that I wanted to free soul it, but just it would fill me with dread, you know, fill me with dread to even contemplate it. And then at a certain point, you know, with enough preparation, that started to shift where I'd look up at it and think like, this is going to be amazing. Alex Honnold is joining us. You know, it's a documentary, and yet one of the cameramen on the project talks about how he nearly said no to the job because he wasn't sure if he wanted to be a part of it. Jimmy Chin, one of the directors, said he was not sure about doing it either because he didn't want to have the cameras there putting even more pressure on you, and he certainly didn't want to film you falling to your death. Did you have any reservations about having cameras around? Uh, not, not really. I mean, for me, the reservation is whether or not I could actually do the climb. You know, whether there are cameras around, you know, that kind of pressure pales in comparison to the actual pressure of, or, you know, the actual fear of falling to your death. So I was never too concerned about the filming component of it. I was just more concerned as to whether or not it was actually possible to do the climb. But also, also, I mean, it's a lot scarier to be a camera person watching than it is to be the person doing, at least in a lot of ways, because I know how much I've prepared. I know how I feel. I know how confident I am. But somebody watching from the outside you know, can't, can't really determine whether I'm ready or not. And so, I mean, free soloing can be sort of horrifying to watch. Alex, it's really horrifying to watch. Even as somebody <laughs> just sitting watching it on my laptop or seeing it in a theater, it's terrifying to watch. And there's a really powerful moment with you and Caldwell where he says that anybody he knows who does free solo climbing is dead now. What did you think when you heard that? Well, I mean, you know, yeah, Tommy was slightly mistaken in that. I mean, because one of the other characters in the film is, is Peter Croft, who's a legendary soloist, who is also a childhood hero of mine. And, I mean, he's, you know, he's a happy middle-aged man who comes and comes and climbs the main Yosemite. And so, you know, I mean, it, it's true that it's a very dangerous sport. It's a dangerous undertaking. But I think done, done conservatively, done well, um, you know, done with enough preparation, you know, it can be executed safely. Alex Honnold is joining us right now. His movie is out. It's in theaters. I'm going to talk to him about his foundation in one moment. At one point, Alex, in the documentary, you undergo an MRI, and you have no activation in part of your brain where it should be responding to stimulation, but yours does not. That was really interesting. What was your reaction when you heard that, and what was your takeaway from that? Well, so, yeah, well, there was no activation under the, the stimulus of that test, but, I mean, but it is structurally there, and it was working in general. And so, I mean, my takeaway was just that the test wasn't stimulating enough. Basically, looking at images wasn't scary enough to, to trigger my amygdala, um, even though it normally does. But so my takeaway was just that through enough preparation, I've sort of desensitized myself, or, you know, or basically through enough conditioning, I've desensitized myself to do a certain level of, of stimulus, I guess. That's incredible. Now, you, you know, mentioned... well, I mean, and, and, and I know that just because, you know, I have been afraid of many things in climbing for many years, and then, you know, I've just seen that after 10 years of practice, there's been a decided change. And so... You know, I mean, obviously, it, yeah, it changes with, with enough preparation. So I wonder, what through preparation and conditioning, do you no longer feel fear when you're climbing, or do you work through the fear? And if so, how do you do that? Uh, yeah, it's more of the working through it. Um, I mean, I definitely still feel fear, because if if there's a high likelihood that I'm going to fall and die, then obviously that's very scary. Um, but I think that that with enough preparation, I've, I've gotten to the point on some climbs where I just know that I'm not going to fall off. And so then it's just not, not scary anymore. 
Alex Holland is my guest. I hope you're watching on CBS Sports Network because we're showing some B-roll, some video, and it's an absolutely astonishing thing to see. So if you spent two years preparing and you spent about 20 years thinking about it, the morning of, when you wake up for that climb and you put on your shoes, what's going through your mind and what kind of emotions do you have the morning of? So the, one of the key things for me was to make sure that on the morning of, I didn't have to think about very much, that everything was sort of ready and all I had to do was execute what I'd already practiced. So, you know, my breakfast was pre-made, my, my bag was pre-packed, I knew exactly where to go and where to walk and, and how to climb. And, and so it allowed me to do as much as possible on autopilot to just sort of execute without having to make decisions. And yeah, I mean, so basically I didn't have to think much when I woke up that morning, I just did what I had been, what I'd been training to do. Okay, but something that nobody's ever done before, that's never, ever been done in history, that there is that. Now, in terms of the climb itself, there are some really tricky pitches that we could talk about, but let's just skip right to the crux, which includes the Teflon corner and the boulder problem. Getting through the boulder problem includes a karate kick or just a flat-out jump, which seems utterly insane to me without a rope. How much time did you spend preparing for that section of the climb? Well, to be fair, the idea of jumping seemed totally insane to me, too, which is why I practiced the karate kick so much, because that's, that's a slightly more secure way of doing it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I spent, I actually honestly don't know how many days, but probably, you know, 20 days up there, and I probably did that, that move, you know, 100 times or more to make sure that I could do it on command. And, I mean, I'd been doing a stretching routine for a year and a half ahead of time to make sure that I had the flexibility to do the kick with, with a high degree of control. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I put a lot of effort into it. All right, so when you're going through Boulder Problem, that's as tense, I think, as anything I've ever seen in a movie. And even I know how it ends because you and I are having this conversation right now. <laughs> yeah. but, but it's still so intense. When you've done that karate kick and you know it's going to work, you smile for the camera. So how good did it feel when you finally got past the Boulder Problem? You know, it felt amazing. I mean, yeah, you can see I kind of talked to the camera for a second. And then, uh, and then right above, I sort of waved to, to the people that I knew were filming from the meadow. Um, just because I knew that my, you know, I had some friends, thousands of people there watching, and I was sort of celebrating with them. But no, I mean, no, it was it was uh, very very satisfying, you know, because the, the Boulder Problem is twenty three hundred feet off the ground, and so I must have been, you know, at least two and a half or three hours into the climb, and so to get through that, it, yeah, I mean, it just felt felt great. It's been sort of looming over me for so long, and then to to actually do it was when I knew that, you know, that I would successfully free solo El Cap. Alex Arnold joining us. So when you know that you're going to f successfully freestyle El Cap, what's it feel like when you're standing on top after eight years of dreaming or more, all the years of preparation, you did it. I mean, how do you put into words what that felt like? Something nobody had ever yeah, done before. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know how to put it into words. It was, it was extremely satisfying. I was very happy. And I mean, even now I'm sort of smiling the way I was then. And, uh, and it does seem like one of the, the only memories in my life that I can sort of fall back on and smile. You know, that makes me just as happy every time I think about it. Now, I would normally not bring this up, but the fact is the documentary also includes your girlfriend, Sonny. I wonder, how do you balance the risks of climbing with having a relationship? And how does she kind of process the entire thing? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's one of the central themes of the film uh, is sort of dealing with that tension. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I think you just have to see the film and sort of see us negotiated over two years. I mean, there's not like an easy answer to that. Um, I mean, particularly because I think when we first started, I mean, our entire and now three-year relationship played out through the course of the film. And so when we first started dating, it was just, you know, this new woman who I thought was great, but, you know, I just met her and I still had this long-term dream to, to do this incredible climb. But then by the end, you know, we're in this serious relationship and, 
and especially now having actually done the crime. I don't know. I mean, basically, it's an ongoing conversation, and, and, and you see that through the film, how we're constantly sort of grappling with the issues of risk and, and you know, whether or not it's worth it and, and what the relationship means. So what was it like for you to sit down after all that work and that climb and to watch that film? Uh, it, uh, it, it, was, it was an experience. I mean, it's, a, it's kind of an amazing film. And, uh, I mean, so, you know, I had seen none of the material throughout the two years that we were filming. So, uh, and I had no editorial control over, over any of it. So me watching the film was as much a surprise as, as anybody else. And so, yeah, I mean, it was, it's, it's, it's pretty powerful for me. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, the climbing is beautiful, but then seeing my whole life just laid out for two years is, uh, you know, I mean, parts of it are challenging for sure, but, but overall it's, you know, I mean, I really appreciate it because it is a very honest look at, at my life for the last several years. Hmm. You know, it's just like this is literally the entire process laid out. And then additionally, you've got a foundation which is focused on projects like off-grid solar projects around the world and communities that do not have access to electricity. It's incredible work, and it seems like something that you're really into. So is there any part of you that ever thinks, maybe I'll just focus on that and then put climbing behind me? Yeah, maybe not put climbing behind me, but um, but it does seem like over the last five or six years since I started the foundation, each year I, I put more and more effort into it. And certainly I hope to do more good for the world through the foundation than I ever will be able to through climbing. And so I think that, that as I get older, it's definitely you know the, the appropriate outlet for, for my energy. So if people want more information, Alex, on the foundation, where might they go to get it? Uh, they should go to honofoundation.org and they can see the partners that we've been supporting and the projects that we're working on around the world. Alex Honnold is my guest. The subject of the documentary, Free Solo, it is now out in theaters. You should look for that. It is an absolutely amazing thing to see. Alex, really nice to have you on the program. I've followed you, known about you, and I look forward to having that conversation, so I'm glad we could finally do it, and good luck with the movie. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, let's talk Fall Classic. And again, this goes to show how little I thought of last night's Monday Night Matchup. Still haven't talked about it yet. World Series getting it away tonight. A pitching matchup that has the potential, depending on how both these guys show up, the potential to be an instant classic. Clayton Kershaw going for L.A., Chris Sale going for the Red Sox. A pair of aces squaring off in Fenway. Kershaw has never pitched at Fenway Park. Does not get any better than that. And while Dave Roberts took a minute or two to name a Game 1 starter after Kershaw came out of the bullpen to close out Milwaukee in Game 7 of the NLCS, he's going with his ace, and it's the right call. He's coming off a start where he went seven innings, he gave up three hits, he struck out nine. And that's something we haven't seen from him lately. He had a relief performance where he had two strikeouts in the three batters he faced. Not to go all irate Craig on you, but for all the hate coming Kershaw's way, he does have an ERA of 237 this October. He might be getting it done in a slightly different manner than the way he used to get it done, but he's still getting it done. And now the Dodgers are asking him to get it done as an underdog. If you plan on getting down on game one tonight, you're getting odds to get down with Clayton Kershaw. If you're wondering when the last time that happened was, it was July 24th, 2012. Six years, nearly three months ago. So the questions continue to surround the Dodgers' ace. But the real question might be the dude taking the bump for the Red Sox. Sale is the filthiest pitcher on the planet when he's right. But the big question is, is this dude right? 
Every bet Alex Cora has made this October has been money. But this one's still a gamble because the last time we saw Sale, he was grinding his way through four less than stellar innings against the Astros. Fastball was down. Control was off. Questions about that bad wing were not answered. If Sale were blowing 100-mile-an-hour hate past the Astros hitters, that'd be one thing. But this guy's out there pitching his guts out and was just able to get through four in a loss. And then he spent the night in Mass General for what the team called a stomach illness. Sale called it a belly button ring infection. Hey, listen, I love this guy. And I love this guy going with that excuse and doing it with a straight face. I wish he had chased that with, yeah, you know, I'm dealing with a couple of things. I got this belly button ring infection, and that's not even as bad as the low back tat infection that I'm dealing with. Or even worse, that torn nipple ring that won't stop bleeding. Let's be real about what that was. That was a straight-up deke. And until we see that dude on the bump tonight rocking high 90s on the radar gun, what's going on with his shoulder cannon is the issue. And that's up for debate. That's the big issue. So I said it yesterday. I'll say it again right now. The Red Sox are monsters. If you're expecting me to pick the Dodgers or to say it's fate that they're going to get it done, I'm not out here to say that. Yes, L.A. can win. Yes, they're probably the only team that can beat Boston. But they're not the favorite. And I will give you one more thing. The Dodgers are nails against the lefties. 78-37 and 37 in their last 115 against left-handed starters. And they're going to go back-to-back lefties in Fenway. Sale tonight, David Price tomorrow. So before all you chowds come in here talking about a sweep, planning your parade, know that you're fighting fire with fire. The best pitcher of a generation on the bump. A lineup that does handle lefties. And a team that has peeled itself off the canvas over and over and over again to get to the World Series. And I don't care if it took them 163 to get out of their division. You shouldn't sleep on these guys. When they're good, they're great. Question is, does their best beat Boston's best? Will we get Boston's best? Or is Sale not at his best? And if they go into Fenway and they steal game one, then what? Who you got? Is what I'm asking. Who you got? World Series. Game one tonight at Fenway. He is undefeated. 34-0, and 25 by KO. Terrence Bud Crawford is my guest. Terrence, really nice to have you on the program. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Well, it's great to have you. So it's been a little over a week since you beat Benavidez Jr. from the outside. It looked like you were dominating that fight, and all you had to do was get through the 12th round to get that win. I'm curious, what was your thinking going into the 12th round, and what was your approach for the final three minutes? Oh, I was just looking for that right shot to uh, open up for me. Like my coach said, if I see it, go for it. If I don't see it, then just cruise to a 12-round decision. But in my mind, I really wanted the knockout. So you were looking for that right shot, and you were looking to set that shot up. That shot turns out to be the right uppercut with 45 seconds left. And after he got up, you were all over him once again until the referee jumped in with 18 seconds left. First off, what did that uppercut feel like? Did you feel like you made perfect contact with that shot? Oh, of course, of course. I knew I had landed uh, a good shot on him. That's why I jumped on him uh, when the ref uh, continued to fight. I, thought, I actually thought we was going to hit each other at the same time, but I was prepared 
for it, and I was thinking in my head, like, okay, I'm going to get hit, but I'm going to make sure I'm going to hit him way harder than what he hit me. And listen, one more thought about that. I mean, again, you could have let that thing go to the scorecards, and you probably would have been fine, but you were looking to close the show. You were looking to finish the fight a certain way. Not everybody would do that. Why was that your approach? Oh, because I, I told him I was going to knock him out, and I wanted to hold up to what I, what I told him I was going to do to him. Right, so that one got kind of personal, and given all the trash talk leading up to the fight, in fact, at the weigh-in, he shoved you with both hands, and you responded. So what did you make of the way he handled himself before the fight? Oh, man, he, he handled himself like uh, I think he was scared at the end of the day. Uh, the things that he was doing and saying was just a little bit too much. Uh, I guess he thought he was going to get under my skin come fight night, but which... That just made me go out there and do what I do best, and then I just get the job done. And I felt like that's what I did in the 12th round was end all the talking. Terrence Crawford's the champ. He joins us now. All right, so given all the talking that he did before the fight, given that you said that you were going to stop him to go out there and do it, how good did it feel to shut him up and win that fight the way you did? Oh, it felt great. It felt great. Uh, I, I guess, you know, uh, he's humble now. And I'm pleased to be the one to humble him. Now, the fight took place in your hometown of Omaha. So what did it mean to end that fight the way you did in front of all your hometown fans? It means a lot, especially being that uh, it was a great show. It was a great outing. A lot of people came out to support me. A lot of people uh, enjoyed themselves at the fight and what way to uh, close the night out with a, a knockout. We're talking to Terrence Crawford. You know, not only was it a great show and a great night, but the fact is the fight had huge ratings. In fact, that was the best audience for any combat event on broadcast or cable this year. So how much pride do you take in the fact that your fans had that kind of passion? Boxing fans want to watch you fight and that you did that kind of number. Oh, man, it's, it's a blessing to uh, be able to be on the other side of the numbers and actually uh, – be the, be the fighter that everybody want to see fight. So I can just say I'm humble and I'm thankful and I'm grateful that uh, people want to tune in to see me fight. Terrence Crawford, my guest, you are humble, you are undefeated, you are the champ, but that's not going to stop other people from talking. Despite that humility, despite all your success, other guys are still talking trash. Tank Davis, for instance, tweeted, no shade, I don't see nothing special about Crawford. Number one, Terrence, as you know, when somebody starts off a sentence with no shade, shade's coming. And what was your reaction when you heard that or saw that tweet? Oh, I just was like, you know, he wants some shine. So I just gave him the emojis like, shh. <laughs> like, there's no comparison when it's coming to me and you. The things I've done in the sport of boxing, you still trying to accomplish. So there's, there's no type of comparison between me and Tank Davis. Terrence Crawford, my guess, he is the champ. He's undefeated. There's a great story from back in 2011 when Tim Bradley was preparing to defend his title, and they brought you in to be a sparring partner, and you only had to fight Southpaw. You can fight both ways, but you were fighting Southpaw. Bradley was undefeated at that point. He had won multiple belts. What do you remember about those sparring sessions, and what did you think going into the sparring sessions? Oh, man. Going into uh, the sparring matches, actually, I was going in there uh, with something to prove, being that my manager slash coach, Brian McIntyre, he had talked to my uh, other manager, Cameron Duncan, and 
they were saying that Tim was sending people home. I was too small for Tim. He was breaking people ribs and so forth and so on. And bro was just like, give him a shot. If if you don't like what he's doing, then send him home the, the next day. And so when I went down there, the first time we sparred, it was just, it was rough. It was rough. It was like a real fight. And I got my respect from day one and Tim and me became close friends. And after that, it was just rough for every sparring match. So I learned a lot from him. Uh, I was grateful that I had the opportunity to actually go down there and spar with an actual world champion. Uh, it told me a lot about myself and it actually gave me a lot of confidence going into my later uh, fights that uh, I was fighting with the confidence that I was sparring a world champion, and now I'm fighting just a regular guy. So if I can hang with him, I can hang with anybody. Yeah, see, it's one thing for you to know that yourself, but maybe another to hear it from the champion himself, because what he said was afterwards, quote, you beat my ass. And then the two of you were talking, and he said you, quote, you ain't no sparring partner, dog. You a world champion. I mean, this was the same guy who was sending guys home and breaking ribs and saying, nah, this guy's too small, but whatever, you can bring him in. Not long thereafter, he's saying, you ain't no sparring partner, dog. You're a world champion. What did it mean to hear that from the champ, the then champ? Oh, man. I, actually, when, it, when he said that to me, I was just smiling. Like, <laughs> I was just laughing because, you know, sometimes in your head you just say, oh, he's just saying that because, you know, I'm right here and so forth. But, no, he really meant it. And when he was telling me that, it was just like we'll sit down before – the gym and after the gym and we'll just have long conversations and he'll put me on game about a lot of things and I was just like he became more of a family than just somebody I was coming down there to spar with and I just took everything in that he was telling me to do and I'm here now. Terrence Crawford here right now undefeated and the champ. Before you go, let me ask you this. You spent some time with Julio Cesar Chavez, one of the true icons of the sport recently. What was it like to spend time with him? Oh, it was, it was real good. He's a big fan of mine. This is actually the second time that I actually did the show with uh, Julio Cesar Chavez. Uh, I've been a big fan since a little kid growing up, watching him fight. Uh, it was an honor. This guy was an amazing fighter. And any time I've got a boxer on the show, I love to ask the guys about the old school fighters they watched growing up. You just mentioned Chavez was one. Who were some of the other guys that when you were growing up that you watched and you admired? Uh, Pernell Whitaker, Floyd Mayweather, of course, of course, Roy Jones Jr. That was my favorite fighter. Uh, James Tony, uh, I watched them all. Tyson, Holyfield, I was a, a, a fan of the sport of boxing. Yeah, I know all the guys you're talking about. <laughs> James Tony, he was great. I mean, <laughs> Tony and I, we we're fine. We're good. We we had a couple of uh choice where you know he's just a different cat James Tony I used to love to watch him fight though he was something else man that was a different different dude what about Roy Jones of all the guys you mentioned you mentioned Hall of Famers why was Roy Jones your guy what made him different from everybody else you mentioned oh just everything about him uh entering out outside the ring uh, his his exhibition of skills his speed his boxing attributes uh his entertainment like just everything around Floyd I mean Roy Jones Jr was just my guy. Then Floyd came on the scene, and uh, he was my guy, too. So it was like A1 and A2. 
Right, so your regard is one of, if not the best pound-for-pound fighters right now. There's been a lot of talk about a possible fight with Errol Spence Jr., a fight that could be a classic. Is that a fight that you're open to taking? Of course. Of course. Uh, like I've been saying, every time people ask me about it, I'm open to have that fight whenever. Uh, Errol Spence is a tremendous talent. He's a great fighter. Uh, I think we'll make for a great fight with each other. WBO welterweight champ, the two-time WBO champion, two-time lineal champion, two-time fighter of the year, and coming off that big win over Jose Benavides Jr., 12th round KO back on October 13th. Terrence Bud Crawford, my guest. Terrence, great to have you on the show. Really appreciate that. Thanks so much. Hope we can do it again soon. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. We go to Southfield. Jeff in Southfield. I'm skipping my take to go to yours. Hey, Jeff, how are you? Thank you for the vine, Jim. Huge props to Grant Napier for handling Brad and Corona's call like a classy gentleman. Since I am not a classy gentleman, here's what I would have said. Whatever four-time smack-off winner, I'm a 40-time guest host, and I have my own show. Ooh, you won five grand? I make five grand every time someone dunks at a Kings game. Hey, Brad, the reason my gorgeous wife is with me and not you is because I'm a good-hearted fellow, and I have genuine confidence. Real confidence isn't so preoccupied with personal appearance, kid. Have fun spending your day shaving your body hair, moosing your head hair, and crushing handfuls of hydroxycut so you can cram into your banana hammock, you clown. Hang up the phone and go listen to Jesse's Girl by Rick Springfield, Brad, because I'm Jesse and you're just wishing, you loser. Speaking of body hair shaving, head hair moosing, hydroxycut crushing, and banana hammocks, hey, Matt and Tyler, I'm guessing your average burly Yukon lumberjack doesn't want your soft asses repping Team Canada. And that Shredmonton gloss is so weak, dude. But not as weak as the reality that the best parts of Canada are still dominated by the French. You're so soft, Canada, that if we ever decided to invade you, the only troops we would send in would be Bill Murray and Harold Ramis and that souped-up RV from the movie Stripes. And they'd crush you. You're so soft, Canada, that we're redubbing you France's bitch. Exempted from that remark is the rock band Rush. Rick and Buffalo, what's the matter with you, bro? Even worse than unwarring Rush is hearing you wore the goo-goo dolls. That's like hearing Chewbacca say war Nickelback. I don't ever want to see Chewbacca in a backstage photo with Nickelback. You gotta be kidding me, Rick. Dude, your tough guy reputation needs to push the button on its life alert necklace because it's fallen and it can't get up. Speaking of Rick and Buffalo, hey, Callan Vegas, your last call was based on the ludicrous premise that anyone thinks you sound like Rick and Buffalo. Rick and Buffalo sounds like an oncoming freight train. Now, the freight it's on is crates full of soft wuss rock like Kenny Loggins and Michael Bolton. But regardless, when that train approaches, it sounds ferocious. Cal, you sound like a spoiled, bratty 10-year-old who thinks you're tough because your mother lets you bully her. Hey, Mom, I'm tired of you favoring my sister. You better buy me that toy I want, or I'll meet you in the basement. Rip that makeup off your face and make you eat it. Cal, threatening to kick celebrities' asses from afar, be it from your Twitter finger or your phone, is common and boring, you coward. What's next? Twerk taunting animals at the zoo? Jim, if this guy gets a golden ticket for putting the words little and nerd together, then that little nerd better give me a golden freaking statue. Jeff in Southfield. Man, that is a weird dude. And he's getting weirder, and he's great. Rack that phone call. Good night, now! 